Welcome to Writers' Voices with Monica and Caroline. I'm your host, Monica Hadley, and with me is my mother and co-host, Caroline Kilborn. Hello, everyone. Welcome. You're going to really enjoy this. <laughs> <laughs> what are we going to enjoy? <laughs> we are going to enjoy uh, talking to the author of The Human Herd, Awakening Our Natural Leadership. And uh, her name is Beth and Stan Dig, and it's it really is a marvelous book. I mean, uh, it's okay. We just got to jump into this because uh, you know. <laughs> All right. So tell us Welcome. a little bit about Welcome. tell us a little bit about Beth, Mom. Okay, she is uh, changing the way organizations, leaders, and individuals use their power. As a lifelong cowgirl writer, professor, and licensed psychotherapist, she has had twenty five years of experience developing implementing and training people in natural leadership, a model she pioneered. Her fresh perspective and working uh, and work integrating basic animal practices into everyday human life have been featured in global media, including BBC World Service, PBS, and Forbes. Um, she has an MA degree in counseling psychology from Santa Clara University, and an MFA degree in creative writing from Arizona State University. She lives on her ranch with an expanding community of animal herds. <laughs> and, well, and, and welcome to Writer's Voices. <laughs> Hi, Thank Beth. Thank you for having me. Hello. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Now, you're in California? I correct? am. I'm, yeah, I'm in Northern California in the, the San Francisco Bay Area. Okay. And um, have you always lived there? I grew up in Michigan and I left Michigan um, in when I was when I finished high school and I was in Arizona for seven years and I, I did my undergraduate and my <laughs> MFA in creative writing there and then I moved to California in 1998. Well, I am in Arizona at the moment. I live in Iowa oh. and Texas most of the time. I split my time between Iowa and Texas, but I'm visiting a friend here in Gold Canyon, Arizona. Oh, lucky. Yeah, and um, it's I haven't been in Arizona in twenty five years, probably. So it's um, it is really lovely. But there's these fires not far away. Oh, in New oh, Mexico. Yeah. Oh, even in Arizona. I th oh, up in Arizona. In, in northern Arizona, there's fires. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it's on. You know, all over the news, and we can see the um, dust. You know, we can definitely see the pollution from the fires. So, um, of course, that's a very scary thing for animals. And now, have you had any fires near where you are? We have. We were actually right in the midst of the pandemic, at the, the height of things. We had three fires going on, and one was the largest in California history. It may have actually been, like, one of the largest in U.S. history. Wow. And, um, yeah, and, and then there were two more that were nearby and we were kind of surrounded and the air was so bad. And, and there was the fire that was really close to us that, that it was like a mega fire. Um, they ended up evacuating the whole Eastern side of my town. And so I went from my horse herd to 60 horses within three hours. And um, I went and helped evacuate horses. And so they were in the eastern foothills and then in the western foothills in the wow. Santa Cruz Mountains. They were coming from both directions. So wow. I had, and I had the news here. I mean, it was a very exciting, um, dynamic time. It's really interesting because the horses, they all settled in 
to the environment and, you know, we're pretty good at knowing how to do that for them here. And, but the people were out of their minds and oh, yeah. Um, yeah, it was really interesting just to see the difference. And, um, mm-hmm. I had to do a lot of separating myself from the humans so that I could stay, you know, this is my place and I was managing all these animals and people. So I had to remove myself from the humans multiple times so I could stay, <laughs> stay balanced and, and be a good leader. So it was a very good lesson in that. Wow. Well, there's all these sort of connections because my father was a, um, when I was born, I was born in Northern California in um, Grass Valley and mom and dad lived there. And my dad worked for the forest service he was a, a civil engineer, but he would go fight fires sometimes when, you know, that wasn't his primary job, but when there, yeah. you know, he, he had, he did that at some t- point in Northern California. And then the other, the other connection is, you know, with Arizona, which where I am, you know, for the first time in, actually I was, he, I was in Arizona. I take that back about. 10 or 12 years ago, I went to Miraval Spa and I did, they have a horse, you know, working with horses um, session that I did that was really, um, really fun. And I I felt really uh, strong about, you know, my ability to convey my intention to the horse and and the horse's ability to pick up on it. And, yeah, <laughs> and so that's what I do with that's people. what you it's do. A, maybe yeah. a, a little bit different style or approach or framework, but yeah, I I have people who've never been around horses learn very quickly how to communicate with these animals and how to form a quick 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 formation of a trusting relationship. And it's a, and it, like you said, it's an incredibly powerful. We really tap into our strength mm-hmm. quickly. Mm-hmm. It was it yeah. was great. It was a great fun, great fun. I really enjoyed it. I also did some of their other adventure things like, you know, where you climb, you scale a telephone pole, get up on the top and then step off, you know, you're in a harness yeah. and stuff. Yeah. But, oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> That's so great. I was with my daughter. I don't think I would have done it without her, but um, she had to kind of pull me up onto the platform, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So Beth, um, you've been working with in this field for many years. I have. But this is your first book about it, right? It's my first book about this. Yeah. Um, I've written, I've been writing my whole life and, and that was my first, um, like first professional life was centered around writing and teaching. Um, but I, as I really focused more on working with people, and I transitioned out of teaching and into counseling and consulting um, and really bringing together the work that I do with people, with the animals. Um, I had the, the message that I had to share and my own experiences with my animals that became a stronger, a stronger voice inside of me that, that felt that it, yeah, I needed to get that into a book form. So, um, so I, I've been writing about this for a while and it took, it took a bit for the book to the, the shape of the book to emerge. And I believe that that happens really organically if we let it. And so I, um, 
people say like, well, how long did it take you to write the book? And I'm like, well, I don't really know because <laughs> it's been taking shape for it's gestates for a while before it, you know, um, <laughs> but I definitely went into like heavy book writing when I got a book contract and had a deadline, but I uh, certainly had pieces. It's kind of like quilt making and I'm, I'm a poet, or, <laughs> you know, first and foremost, so putting together books of poetry is like composing music. And I, this book was similar where there were lots of pieces to it and lots of weaving things together. Awesome. Um, I was going to ask you about the structure of the book because it's, um, I think it's, it's in a really important part of this mm -hmm. book. So do you want to describe what that, what that sure. structure is? Yeah, the structure of the book um, is um, based on, on the way that people learn, which is um, we learn through relationship and story and um, that we've been learning that way um, for all of time <laughs> through, <laughs> through, um, through experiences, through symbols and art and through story. And that's the, you know, when we, when we learn things emotionally and personally, we learn them very deeply. And so every chapter begins with a story and they're my stories. Um, and my hope is that people reflect on those and think of their own. Um, but I, they're my stories about my own experiences with my animals and the, the core lessons that come from each of those stories. And then there's a section of the chapter that describes the concept um, that is about the natural leadership model. And, um, and then the, the last part is a practice or how to take that concept and bring it to life whether you're doing that with animals or without, but really bringing it to life in your own experience as an individual or in relationship or in groups. And you have um, how many chapters? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one of the things I think it's happened, 10, but it might be. <laughs> it is. It's 10. It's 10 chapters and yeah. um, an introduction, which really is kind of its own <laughs> chapter. But since the book came out and, and into like this artifact form, I've been a little phobic of it. <laughs> so it kind of, I, I have, it has like, I orbit around the book with a wide girth. I kind of like, I don't want to go near it. <laughs> and I've moved on to, to writing the next book. It's really funny. It's really hard for me to be near my own book. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I know. So you're asking me to like lay my hands on it and read from it today. And it's definitely, it's a little bit of a leap for me. So put that out there. So the chap, these 10 chapters, are they um, part of this natural leadership model that you have developed over time so yeah you know when you started writing the book those were pretty much already set what the they chapters were already would be set and I'd been teaching them and so I'd had cohorts of students for a couple of years that I had been taking through the model and I had lots of material around them around these concepts and I had a sense of the order with which to introduce the concepts and they the order comes from again from the animals and from nature not really from me um but like the way that we experience the world and what are these core elements within our nature and and how what's the the easiest most practical way to learn them that really makes sense and that they come to life kind of in this layered way and the feedback that i've gotten from my students over the years is that there is this sequence 
that you kind of begin to wake up this part of you and and learn more about our innate instincts and and um, signal system. And so the the book is ordered with those in mind, with that sequence in mind. Well, the, the, and, the, and the diagrams in each chapter are very helpful. Oh, good. Because, yeah, they really are. They really are. Yeah. Good. Because um, there's so much, in, I mean, there's so much information. There's so many, oh gosh, I was just overwhelmed to tell you the truth. But, um, <laughs> I know. I was a little worried about that. I, I think each chapter could be its own book. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. I know. And I when I first laid it out, I said like, this is going to be like 1500 pages. And I, <laughs> I did write a textbook in 2004 and I, I'm like, this isn't really a textbook. I need this to not be a textbook. And so, um, it's an introduction to a new way of thinking and an introduction to a lens through which you can see the world and see yourself. And, and it's just the beginning. So it's, I have to let it be that, but <laughs> yeah. it is dense. <laughs> You're listening to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline, and our guest today is Beth Ann Standick, author of Human Herd. The, do you have other people teaching this model? Um, I do. I mean, the people that I've taught have gone on and are using it in their organizations, um, in their classrooms, um, with clients, and um, but as far as like teaching the whole model. And I have former students who are now assisting me in teaching it. And so it is out there. It has a life of its own. Um, but I, but there isn't anyone that I know of. (laughs) I hope I, (laughs) that I know of that's out there teaching it as a whole. Okay. Okay. And I should say the whole title of the book is the human herd awakening our natural leadership. Um, the human herd, tell us, why that title? Well, um, I've come to learn from my own animals, um, mostly with, with dogs. I've, I've had border collies for most of my adult life, actually all of my adult life. Um, and I've done a lot of sheep herding and livestock work with them. And, um, so a lot of partnering experiences with these dogs, not just as pets, but really doing things together, um, learning how to work together and communicate and then horses, most of my life. Um, they've been a huge um, guide and um, they've led me in incredible ways and taught me. And as I studied human psychology over the years, I was really, I was always drawn to the animal mammal part of us into looking at the primitive things that drive us as humans. I was really interested in, in the early writings um, early psychological writings of, of Freud and then looking at the neuroscience that came out in the early 2000s and really understanding like the organism of the animal of us and how it drives our psychology. And the more I put those pieces together, I was, I was thinking, you know, we're herd animals and we are not really learning how to act like herd animals. We don't really know what that means. We like we haven't really studied other herd animals to understand like what do they do to have these peaceful, mostly peaceful, stable groups that allow them to survive and thrive and and evolve and you know what are the lessons there that we could be capturing and so to think of ourselves in that way as human animals and as, you know, herds of people that, you know, that have these core elements of, 
you know, as animals, we have needs and as herd animals, we need each other. And with those two core concepts, you know, well, what if we, if we, if we take those as sort of these radical commitments to needs, what, what do we need to learn in order to take care of ourselves better and in order to take care of each other's needs better? And that's really where the model, you know, I think most of the things we create come out of really good questions. And so that's really where my work has, you know, I, I've had a lot of question marks. People have been telling me my whole life enough with the questions, <laughs> but they've really served me well because they keep me learning and, um, and they keep me humble and they, you know, and they, they've kept me studying things from a systemic point of view and, so I, I really started with those question marks that if we're herd animals and we are, if we're animals and we are herd animals, then what are our individual needs and what are our group needs and how do we need each other and how can we do that differently? Now we think of horses as herd animals. Dogs, mm-hmm. we think of as pack animals. Is there a difference between a pack and a herd? Well, they're mammal groups. And so when we think of humans as mammal groups and that are, we're social mammal groups that need each other. I mean, the main difference, I think, when studying animal groups and capturing lessons from them is just simply where do we exist on the food chain? Right. Because I think the animals that we think of as living in herds are prey animals and the ones we think of as living in packs are more predators. Probably. Yeah. And we're both. And I we're mean, both, well, yeah. but if you think about it, I mean, we are, we're omnivorous. Yeah. So we're both and we're where we are on the food chain. We are prey. Yeah. And so it's good to think of that and think of ourselves as both. And now we're prey to things that we've created like stress. And so, you know, yeah. it's good to think about the food chain and the, our survival system to start to, to really, we don't tap into that when we think about psychology because it's so, we're so slow to suffer into demise. <laughs> <laughs> we are, we're incredible. I mean, it's incredible what we can withstand before we collapse. That's a good point. Yeah. It's, a, it's a sad point, but yeah. It's, it's, yeah. What really caught my attention right away was the, the, the the primitive brains, reptile, mammal, and human. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah. So the understanding of the triune brain theory um, looks at the layers of our evolution and that we have within the human brain um, a you know our the at the nervous system level this reptilian type of brain that is. Um, designed at like, that's like our brain stem functioning. And the way that I was taught this was um, that's the part of us that has a startle response. And it's also the part of us that eats our own young. Like it will, (laughs) and we don't because of the rest of our brain evolution, but that it's a very primitive part of our brain. And Mm. on layered on top of that is that this whole system of the, our whole mammal system, which should be like your limbic system or your amygdala and the, the neighboring parts that that's where your emotional brain is. And that's your fight or flight and your ability to read the environment 
And that's where a lot of bonding occurs. That's all mammal groups. And it's a very, very dominant part of us. And it's always reading our, our environment for safety. And then the, the next layer, which is the part that's become, um, you know, this incredibly sophisticated supercomputer is the neocortex. And that's the part of the brain that makes meaning out of our experiences and forms language and can put ourselves in time and space. And that's, you know, write books mm. about it. And, <laughs> um, and so and we can interpret our experience and we, that's the part of us that also can, can learn how to cope and, um, with our emotional, we get with our emotional responses. So the part of us that can learn and teach and, um, and that's, that's unique to humans. So the language part of our brain that's unique to us, yeah. it's very yeah. dominant and we have a very, very busy language center and thought maker. That's the part of the brain that makes thoughts. And it, what it does is it dominates over the rest of the brain and the rest of our system so that we're not actually listening to that part of us. And that's why I work with the animals because they are completely tapped into that part of us and they're showing us what's happening. Even when our brain is too busy making thoughts to be able to see or feel it. Hmm. So we, we, Monica, we, we interviewed someone once who could, communicate with animals and as, as I recall he said that that horses want to gift us am I correct in that do you remember that <laughs> well do they want to gift us horses because they are prey animals they're vegetarians they safety in numbers is the main rule of the horse herd right it's like better together they're very, very quick to want to befriend and partner. And so their motivation is to partner with us as quickly as possible to be part of the herd and to share resources. And uh-huh. so it is self-serving, <laughs> but yes, they, they, but they, I watch them gift each other all day. They're always sharing, sharing needs. And so, and I think we're the same. I, I do believe that we're just not tapped into it. Mm. Yeah. So the stories that you have in here about um, the back and forth between the horses is really wonderful. Yeah. The um, my niece and Caroline's granddaughter, Lauren works with horses and dogs very similar. She's in Texas in the Houston, Texas area. And she uses a, um, a form of training called Liberty training. Is that mm-hmm. something you're familiar with? Yeah. I adopted a <laughs> Mustang. Um, so, ha- and she has too. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yep. From the Bureau of Land Management. I did that. It's been a lifelong dream. I actually first encounter with wild horses was in Arizona and, um, I used to camp in the salt river area in the superstition mountains a lot. And, um, I would watch the herds, the Salt River herds, um, you know, all night, <laughs> all night, like watching them. They, and, um, and it was just an incredible experience. This was, you know, 30 years ago. And, um, and, and since then I have, you know, gone to different Mustang events and I always wanted to do it. I'm like, Oh my God, I have to do it now. And I, so I adopted this course and we went and got her in Idaho. She came from Northeastern Nevada, but she was completely untouched. And I really had no idea 
how I was going to, what I was going to do. I'd been, I'd read all kinds of things and observed what other people did, but I, I'm like, well, I have to use my model. <laughs> and so, um, I know that I have to, I have to do the relationship the way that I believe in. And so what happened was very quickly, it, it I realized I was going to do everything freedom based. And so that whole relationship has been freedom based and, um, she haltered herself. So I waited until she put her own face in the halter. Oh my. I know. Oh, wow. Yeah. And all the things I'd heard about what you don't do with the Mustang, like you can't let them in a big loose area or you'll never catch them again. You can't put them with other horses or they'll bond with the other horses and not you. You can't let them near your dogs or they'll kill them. Like all these rules and none of them were true. (laughs) You really, you and Lauren really should talk because she's, I love that. Yeah, yeah, she's, I, love I think she has trained people. two. I think she's done two Mustangs now. And it's so funny. I had never heard of the Superstition Mountains before this week because that's where I am. I'm like, my hotel has a view of the super, of the Superstition yeah. Mountains. Yeah. And, um, and so that's just so interesting that that's where you look at there's all these interconnections I love that and I have and I have a a lovely long-term friend who lives in Nevada who used to um she's an artist um but to make money sometimes which when you're an artist sometimes you have to do other things to make money she would work for the Bureau of Land Management to go out and and help with the um with the Mustangs and oh wow yeah like counting them or or you know watching them and uh, Things like that. So that's a good thing for an artist to watch wild horses. Yeah. <laughs> as an artist, as a poet, yeah. a young poet, that's what I, that's all I wanted to do was go watch wild horses. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So you started out, you said like as a poet and a writer, but then you went and studied psychology and what, I'm just curious about why you decided to do that. Well, I'd been doing, um, my own personal development for a long time. I had been in and out of therapy forever. I had a really chaotic upbringing and, um, and actually my mom is a psychologist and I was like the one in the family that was most symptomatic. And so I'm the one that got to go to therapy. And on the (laughs) one hand, you know, in in the counseling world, we call that the identified patient. And we all know that the one who's symptomatic is like the strongest, like the truth teller, but that, and that's often the the person who gets sent to, to, to therapy because they're causing problems. Mm. (laughs) They're trying to let you know there's trouble in the system. And so, so the good news about that is that I really started a process of like learning how to work on myself and, and, and reflect and also knew how to ask for help at a young age. And so, um, so I had that background and then I went into, um, writing and, you know, just followed my art was really what happened. And then, and there's not a lot of, you know, career path for poets these days. <laughs> and so I was, I was teaching at university level and, um, and just, I really loved that. And I, I ran a literary arts center oh. and I was part of starting an MFA program at a university, which was really, um, challenging and, um, but also rewarding. And, but really at the end of the day, I I did not love university administration and the bureaucracy. I didn't feel like it was a great place as an artist to live for me. 
Um, but I loved working with the students. And because I was working on writing with them, my office hours felt like therapy sessions (laughs) and they're really opening up about their inner world through their writing. And, and it would come out in these conversations. And, and I was, you know, like, I can't stay in this university, um, this, you know, this university culture wasn't going to work for me. I knew that the way it was. And I'd worked in two universities. And so I, I started experimenting. I was like, what, what am I going to do? Like, how, how am I, what kind of job am I going to have? And so I, I started thinking about counseling and I'm like, I'm going to go take a couple of graduate clinical psych courses and see what happens. And like, it was pretty instant. I'm like, this is a really good space for me. And it would allow me to keep doing all the other things that I do and inform it. And, you know, it, the, the world of writing and being in a poem, you know, it is this very, there's a lot of depth of connection between story and an emotional world. And it felt very compatible with learning to do that in person with people. I, I knew how to do that in my own world. And so to, to go into people's inner worlds with them was, you know, I think there's a lot of English majors that end up becoming therapists. <laughs> and when you, when you started studying clinical psychology did you mm-hmm. did you th- in the back of your mind think about bringing the lessons from the animals in or you know at what point did you realize you had something there it's so interesting and I, I saved this because as an artifact of my you know kind of my history because the right around the time that I was I there was like a two-week period where the, I was aware this is what I need to do I'm going to go to graduate school I'm going to pursue this I immediately started looking into horse therapy. And at that time, it was prevalent in um, drug and alcohol treatment centers in the UK. And horses have been used as healers since like the shaman in Mongolia have been doing that for thousands of years. So it's not new field, but it's new in the US. You know, it's relatively new. But I started looking into that and I have the all of the paperwork and it was a, it was within a week of thinking that I was going to be a therapist that I, I knew that that was an element to it, but I didn't pursue it then. Oh. I got really rigid in my thinking about it needs to be a traditional education and I need to get really solid as a therapist before I bring that in. And I, you know, I don't regret that because I was pursuing the horsemanship and my whole equine world alongside it. But they got to be separate studies, and I had a lot of my own work to do. I had a lot of my own healing to do, and I'm really glad. It would have been too much for me. to. I think people bring that together prematurely, and they're two very different sets of expertise. And so, I, yeah, I'm really glad that I kept it separate. I do think I kept it separate for too long. Uh. <laughs> yeah. they and, and I didn't bring them together. It happened on its own. So. Oh. Yeah. Our, our socialization, socialization uh, of, of human animals developed uh, and for the first 24 months of life, we are, we are the same, our children are, the brain develops the same as chimpanzees, is that correct? It is, before our language center really lights up and gets a lot of uh-huh. our resources. Yeah. 
Wow. That's, that was so interesting. I mean, I've never heard that before. That this book is, you know, every time you turn a page, you think, oh, my gosh, there's something I've never heard of before. Well, and, it, and it, you start to wonder when we're trying to reason with a toddler. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And they were like, how, why are they throwing food? And it's like, well, because we're animals and that's what we do. And it takes a long time to learn to be a um, – a talking, relating, <laughs> city-dwelling citizen, right? I mean, it's and it's incredible, our expectations on, you know, we really don't understand our children's brains and their brain development. And so um, for me, when I had my daughter, um, she's 11 now, and it was that it really, this model really started to come to life because of her. And actually the, mm. the story in the introduction is about that. I finally had a talking animal. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, you said after three years, then humans are committed to their impulses, their drives, sens- uh, sensations and needs. And that, see, that's, that's what, that's what happens. And then, yeah. And then we, we, as we grow, those things develop, hopefully, not always, but hopefully they do. And uh, so that's where we get to when we're adults. Oh, right. Gosh. The problem is, is that, so those are all developing within us. And most of our classrooms, unless they have a unique philosophy of actually harnessing and integrating those parts, are suppressing mm-hmm. those parts. So we mm-hmm. take our children when all the lights are on. Of, of instinct and, and these primitive drives. And it's all the parts of us that are teaching us what, how to survive in the world. And we put them in a classroom and set them at a desk. Mm. Mm. You're mm-hmm. listening to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline. And our guest today is Beth Ann Standick, author of The Human Herd. Beth, why don't you read a little bit from the, from the sure. opening of the book for us? I would love to. This is a story about my daughter, Emma, who is my talking animal. And, um, <laughs> and does she know you call her that? <laughs> yeah, she, she's 11 now, or I say 11 teen. Yeah, um, yeah. And yeah, so she, yeah, gotcha. she knows how to roll her eyes now quite well. And so when I say things like that, I get a good eye roll. Um, but no, she's had to live with my philosophy her whole life, so she, it, nothing surprises her anymore. Um, I'll read to a point and then pause, and if you want me to keep going, I okay, will. sure. Okay, so the introduction is called How We Settle In, and this is a story about Emma and how um, how she began to teach me with her words um, more about myself as a human animal, even though I had been studying that for a long time she started putting some language to it. Um, she was very, very early, very lots of verbal skills early on and um, very bold in talking about her needs. Thank goodness for all of us. My heel catches the edge of the running board as I swing my legs out of the truck, held hostage by the narrow skirt squeezing my thighs. I shift out of the seat and try not to spill to the ground. I've compressed myself in so many ways today. I swear these pointed toe heels will take me down. But right now, they raise me up and lengthen my stride. It's like I become another body, someone with stately legs and fingers like willows. 
someone who knows the right thing to say and what to do with her hands. Only an hour earlier, I stood in the closet dreading another fancy party. Feeling desperate and lost, I chose the heels like a punishment for not fitting the mold. A deep longing from my bone marrow surfaced, a primitive reflex. Show up, fit in, no matter what. I brushed off the dust and dog hair and shoved my feet inside, toes numbing almost instantly. I steamed and ironed the wrinkles of my garments and my being, buttoned up and quieted my oddities, so many contortions and folds as I collapsed into myself like a card table. Yet again, I've painted myself into this familiar corner. One part of me is wild and free and knows her needs. She's the one who drives the truck, bought the ranch, and lives with a pack of dogs. She lies in the dirt with her horse herd barefoot, dreaming up new ideas and poems. She can hear beyond words, but she's scared and sometimes finds herself too far out in front and alone. The Buddhist nun Pema Chodron says that anxiety is the human response to wide open space. The freedom to just be becomes too vast to bear. It's the panic a newborn feels unswaddled, a state of formlessness without boundaries, an abyss of self. The other part of me is in that corner. She's tidied up, polished, and poised. She wears education and privilege like a designer bag, full of cash, connections, and credentials. She uses charm, irony, and an occasional sharp tongue as she chit-chats her way through the country club lobby. But she's trapped. She can't breathe, and she's dying inside. We hurry along the circular driveway with its tightly trimmed shrubbery and leafless sidewalks. Golf carts whir in the distance over an eerily silent backdrop that only an exclusive membership can buy. Every car is new and spotless, every parking spot amply wide. No dents, no deviations, no signs of people coming or going or living. It seems fixed in time like artificial turf grass or starched shirts that stand on their own. I've done this walk a thousand times, wrestling with these misaligned parts of myself, but this time it's different. There's a little girl holding my hand, Emma. My daughter's sticky fingers twist along my wedding ring as we hurry across the hot asphalt. She's four years old and chatty, more than I could ever have imagined. The soundtrack to my life is her diminutive voice, flute notes fluttering the octaves. She narrates the day passing, the wind blowing, the emotions rising and falling as they do. She comments on her interior world and she wants to know about mine. She weaves our emotional worlds together like a cloth she grasps and she asks me to do the same. Today is different though. Today she has worry in her throat, longer pauses between questions, something in her that hesitates. It has no name, not yet. We walk past the doorman and she pulls my hand. She wants to look him up and down, wants to look in his face and figure him out. It's puzzling, this man who does nothing more than open and close a door. I have no words for her. We stitch the moment together with our eyes, our place of shared awareness, the gaze where we meet and know and breathe. This is the soft feel of our relationship an invisible give and take that allows us to move through the world together. But I can feel my muscles constrict and my skin tighten. It's like I'm wearing a suit made of concrete. I can move, but only an inch or two before I hit the hard edges. 
the strict form that tells me I can't go any further and to stop being who I am. I hurry us forward, pulling her hand as I feel her willingness drag along the polished floors. When we get to the entrance of the banquet room, we both pause. The doorway busts at the seams, not with people, but with pressure. This time, Emma yanks on my arm with force. We feel the increase in pressure at the same time, and we balk like animals startling and spinning towards safety. It's too much. I drop to my knees instinctively. Maybe prayer is this simple. The moment when you're at eye level with your child and you're humble and open enough to listen to the world through her pristine awareness, her unfiltered self-preservation. It's all I know to do. Feel the pressure. Stop. Listen. It's been a lifelong standoff between me and pressure, but this time I can't bulldoze through it. I can't small talk it away with a mimosa in one hand and my daughter in the other. When I quit drinking, the mindless chatter and half-asleep social niceties became as painful as the three-day hangovers I gladly gave up. We stop and we stay. We stay at the banquet room entrance, Emma in her flowing party dress and me on my knees next to her. From her perspective, I can see a wall of looming lower body parts distorted like when peering into funhouse mirrors. The tables, tables are all pub height with crisp linens like satin ball gowns. We see a mix of chair legs and human legs, skin and stockings, metal and wood, some parts moving and others not. And there's so much noise, laughter and talking, joyful on the surface, but right below the celebratory hum, the pressure builds like a thick patch of fog, a pocket of warm air, or an angry glare you wouldn't dare to pass. Emma squeezes my hand. I know. She whispers. I need a few minutes to settle in. It's the wisest thing I've ever heard. Yes, I say, I do too. We stay there as if we're invisible. The party goers arrive around us, strangers, friends, family. We're like a rock formation in the middle of a river, the water moving around us, over us. It's the first time I've let myself stay put to settle into a new space before trying to function or interact. Emma asked for what she needs, and it's what I need. It's what I've always needed. But I had built a life out of forgotten needs and ignored desires. I've been living under an anvil of pressure, driven by internal expectations and external demands. Pressure that often became painful and left me feeling breathless, lifeless, and motionless. The only way to live like that with pressure, overwhelm, and pain is to go numb. I had a thousand ways to stay busy or to chase accomplishments, to run from myself. I was half asleep at the wheel of my own life, numb or wanting to be numb. I noticed opportunities for waking up pass by me from time to time, like a fog light scanning through the opaque night sky, one beam of clarity passing through darkness. My inner alarm clock would go off, but I just kept pressing snooze. I was caught in a self-made trap, either chasing numbness or running to catch up, with what I had missed while numbing out. I worked myself to the bone, trying to be good enough, smart enough, successful enough, refined enough, succumbing to other people's expectations or stories about my identity that I had written and labeled as truth. Then in a dangerous mix of exhaustion and entitlement, I would free fall wildly in the other direction. And the only way to get relief was to lose my mind. I did that with any behavior that could change my feelings or help me to not feel them at all. There was no middle path. It was all or nothing. 
I didn't work with the pressures of life, learning how to cope or choosing for myself how I wanted to live. Instead, I reacted. By the time I became a parent, I had already bounced around rock bottom like it was a trampoline. Years of running from myself ended when I finally got sober. The emotional and spiritual blood flow returned to my limbs slowly, but with a biting pain after frostbite. Waking up is shocking. It's like leaving the movie theater after a matinee, opening the doors and looking into the afternoon sky without sunglasses. It's blinding and disorienting and nothing feels right. It's when we finally get into contact with ourselves, our feelings, sensations, the real stuff of our humanity, like a new layer of skin touching the air for the first time. For me, I've had to fully own my sensitivities to see them as my most essential gifts and to learn to take care of them in the grossly overstimulating world in which we live. Thank you. And that's mm. Beth and Standick reading from The Human Herd. So the area, the chapters in the book, I'm just, I'm just going to kind of read them off and you, can you give us just a short line, sort of a summary of each, of each part? So, so chapter one is mammals. So this is a chapter about how to understand ourselves as human animals and to begin looking at ourselves this way. Awareness. This is um, a core core teaching and concept from the animals that um, is different than mindfulness, but looks at how to become aware of ourselves in the world and stay aware and have awareness as an ongoing practice of how to attend to our own needs and the needs of others and, and the changing world around us all day, every day. So this is a, a very core concept. I definitely agree with that. Scope. Yeah. I also found this very interesting. Scope. Yeah, this is a concept I learned from my herding dogs, and it's about being able to use the big picture as a concept to start to understand um, what's happening in any given moment as a system. And so when we're too close to things, we can't see the whole picture and we don't see how things are interrelated. So this is a whole chapter on looking at things systemically. Pressure. Oh, (laughs) yeah. So we don't understand pressure until we're feeling overwhelmed and then it's really hard to do anything about it. So this chapter helps us to understand pressure on a continuum and pressure as actually a really helpful signal that tells us that there's something that needs to adjust and that we can actually do those micro adjustments before things become tense, stressful, or traumatic. Pace. Um, Pace is learning how the human animal is very clumsy at (laughs) going too fast or too slow. And I read a little bit about that in the introduction because I had wild swings between over-functioning and under-functioning. So this is a chapter about how that happens and why it happens and how we can actually find our natural pace. Feel. This is a really core concept that comes from the horse world. And it's about learning the space in our relationships that are pre-verbal. And this is about the, the, the space between us as mammals, as humans, where we pick up a lot of signals mm. and where all our trust is born. 
Yeah, the the idea that what is it verbal? We only get what seven percent of our communication is verbal. The rest, Isn't that amazing. Yeah, I the, know our brain is very busy picking up on other cues. Yeah, and yeah, so when we rush through feel, feel is the space, mm-hmm. and when we rush through that or fill it with busyness or talking or thinking or interacting, we actually aren't getting any of those signals. Power. This is our hot topic. But it's <laughs> understanding um, how mammals influence each other and how they block each other's influence and how to have balanced a balanced relationship between power and control. Okay. Desire. Uh, this is a chapter on looking at how our stories of the past influence our ability to be fully present with our energy in the moment and um, how we go from disappointment, um, how it blocks us from being able to truly inhabit what we're wanting. Yeah, I found that very interesting, this relating disappointment and desire, because you don't Mm -hmm. normally think of them as, as kind of the same in a way. And yeah, we're really used to talking about what we don't like. Yeah. So, so the distinction is, is, is disappointment is focusing on what you don't like and desire is focusing on what you want. Correct. And, and there's so much power and energy and, <laughs> and focusing and it teaches other people more about us when we can communicate that, but it's such a higher emotional risk to put that out there. Yeah. Um, interpersonally, but I would say that living with disappointment is so toxic internally that it's a higher cost than the risk interpersonally. Well, there's a saying that what you put your attention on grows. Absolutely. So if you're paying attention to what disappoints you, you're just, you're going to end up with more of that. Yeah. I learned this from my animals because if you, if you don't show them where you're going (laughs) or what you're wanting, they, they are very stuck. And so I, and if the same thing's true with what we do with ourselves or what we do with each other, human to human. Okay. Trust. Um, This is all about um, how to shape relationships and how to get into a more explicit and intentional feedback process so that we have a trust process going in our relationships. And this is, um, one of the things that animals teach us is that they do that trust building and learning about each other and shaping their relationship. They galvanize that very early on. I just hadn't really thought of trust as a process, you know. <laughs> I know. How about how about you, Caroline? Yeah, I'd have to agree with you. Well, well, it is a process. Oh, yeah, you get to it know is. Somebody. Yeah. Yeah, you get you get to know somebody, and then all at once you realize, oh yeah, I can trust this person. I yeah, you should have data. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yes. So yes. what we do is, and this is, and this is, we don't realize how brave it is to get into a trust process. And so, what we want is to feel trust first. Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and then, and then we want to do the trust process, but it doesn't work that way. Exactly. We actually have to take right. risks first. <laughs> yeah. But if we were teaching each other this, it would be a little bit easier to stomach because, like, oh, I am doing a brave thing. No wonder it's so hard. And so, but what we do is we blindly throw trust at each other. And then when the relationship tanks out, we can't figure out why. And it's because, well, I decided to trust this person that I didn't, they didn't, I didn't know anything about them. They didn't know anything about me. We hadn't shaped the relationship. 
and then we're shocked. Yeah, that it doesn't yeah. that it didn't work. Correct. And and then chapter ten is heard. Yeah, this is about what it's like to live, to really lean into being a herd animal and what it really takes to be a fully supported uh, mammal and and what it means to share uh, to share needs and share resources. Yeah. And that's when, you know, learning to say, I need help, I need this, for some people like me, <laughs> is, is always been very hard. And to, to ever admit, that I need anything from someone else. And I actually had a, um, a chiropractor who did this technique, which I can't remember the name of net network. Anyway, one time I was, I had a, was having a problem with my neck and I, and he was like digging down into why this was happening. And I, you know, realized with his help that, I, it, it had to do with, with, I was doing something that I should have asked somebody else to do and I injured my neck and why was I not able to ask somebody else to do that? And I had this deep seated fear that asking for help meant I couldn't take care of myself. And if I yeah. couldn't take care of myself, I would die. You know, it was just like, so, and it was so deep, but yeah. You know. Yeah, it's a really, I think that the self-care, other care crisis that we're in as humans, that, you know, I, somebody needs to do some research and write a book about where that story really came from, that being <laughs> asking for help is weak. But I mean, I became a helper and was a therapist and I still was so under supported, even though I was in a field that absolutely buys into the idea of people needing support. And I didn't lean into really having a herd and needing my own support until I hit rock bottom with my alcoholism. And I, when I got sober, I really learned what it meant to have needs and to need others and to actually practice needing others. And now every day I ask myself, what do I need today? And who? Mm. Who do I need today? Who, because I have a herd and they don't all like, I mean, I have a herd of horses and I, I always need them, but I also have a herd of horses and they are not all living together. So they're a virtual herd, but I know who they are and they know who they are and they know they're a part of my herd. And so if I, they, and they know what part of me they support. Mm. And I ask myself every day and I don't go a day without getting supported by my herd. Not a single day. Wow. It might not be everyone. But at least one or two people support me every day. It seems like people either, that there are some people who are really good at asking for support and not so good at giving. Right. <laughs> I've known quite a few of those in my life. And, yep. and then others who are the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So finding that yeah. balance is what's exactly. important. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We're, I mean, for some of us learning to how to ask and accept how to know what we need, ask for help and actually accept the help is the harder lesson yeah. for other people learning to be a resource to others and get outside of ourselves and, and be able to be of service and learn that that's part of being a herd is, um, is the lesson, a harder lesson. And, right. and yeah, it's, and for some people it's both. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So Caroline, we're about out of time. Do you have some, a final question or two? And before each chapter, she has uh, uh, 
different uh, things from different people. Like um, uh, I have taken a couple of these I was going to use for the final things because mm-hmm. they are they are really good these these quotes and uh, there's, just, there's just so much in this book. I mean, I just don't know where to start. <laughs> Well, we are about out of time, and and um, Caroline does always close out with a <clears throat> quote for us. And so, would you like to read a couple of the quotes from the chapter headings, Mom? Okay, this this one comes from Chapter Six, which is Feel, and it's by Parker Palmer. If we want to support each other's inner lives, we must remember a simple truth: the human soul does not want to be fixed. It wants simply to be seen and heard. And then in the chapter 10, the herd from Bill W., learning how to live in the greatest peace, partnership, and brotherhood with all men and women of whatever description is a moving and fascinating adventure. (laughs) (laughs) So I couldn't find anything better than that. That's, yep. (laughs) Those, those are good. Those are good. Well, thank you so much for being with us today, Beth. Oh, thank you. This is such a pleasure. And see you all next week on Writer's Voices. 